to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. We are on episode seven. Um, And today's subject actually rose out of last week's subject of Oakwood Cemetery. And the reason for that is just that the people who created this house that we're going to talk about um, were actually interred at Oakwood Cemetery. Now, before we get into that, I do want to publish an update. Last week, I asked you guys to tell me what might be scary um, about being in cemeteries. Since I didn't get it, I was wondering what was the reasoning uh, behind that fear for anybody listening. And I did have somebody respond. So thank you, Celeste Sandoval. Um, She let us know. I'm just going to quote her here because I don't want to misquote her. Um, She says she's scared of walking on or around graves. To which I was like, yeah, I mean, get, I get being scared um, walking on graves because it's disrespectful, but why around? And she says, because when I'm trying to walk around a grave, I'm scared that I could walk on uh, another person or in- unintentionally and tick off a spirit. I know it's silly, but I do not want to make someone mad who may follow me home. And for those of you that are skeptics like myself, you might say, hmm... I don't know, follow people home, that's weird, I don't think I believe that. But I'll tell you what, it's actually a common theme in a lot of ghost stories. Really, a lot of ghost stories having to do with asylums and institutions like that. So, before you say nay to that, there there are quite a few stories, and we'll get to one of them next week. It was just, it turned out to be a much larger subject than I had originally anticipated, so... Yeah, next week. I'm really excited about it, actually. But let's go ahead and get into this week's subject, which is Littlefield House. So we're going to go into the history of the person who created it, because I think that's pretty important. So let's start. George Littlefield was born in June of 1842 in Pondola County, Mississippi, to Fleming Littlefield and the former Mildred Terrell Satterwhite. Fleming was actually the overseer. Uh, for the little bit of gossip here, uh, Fleming was the overseer of the Satterwhite's family estate, and there was some uproar about the marriage. So um, they really could only stand about eight years of that. And in 1850, the family moved to Gonzales County outside of Beaumont in Texas. Now, shortly thereafter, George's father, Fleming, died. That was in 1853. And after that, in the late 1850s, George attended for at least one year. Baylor University. During his time there, he met Alice Payne Tiller. She was anywhere when at the time of their meeting, they didn't give a specific date. So I'm going to say she's anywhere from 11, 12, or 13. I know she began school at age 11. Now, before you say Baylor University, what 11 years old? Was she like a genius or something? Maybe, but that's not why she was admitted into the school. At this time in the 1800s, Baylor was not located um, in the area we now know it in, which is Waco. Um, It it was also not necessarily a college like we know today. It was more like a school. Um, So, yeah, they absolutely would have attended at the same time. Um, He was about four years older than her, but even at this point, I mean, they still would have attended together. So during this time, the Little Fields, that is George and his mother had amassed kind of a large estate for the time. Um, And this is all kind of taken down during the census. So when he was 18, 
uh, that year's census listed him as the manager of his mother's plantation. The real estate that they owned was valued at over $23,000. And the personal property attached was valued at $30,000. Now, to give you a little perspective on those figures, $23,000 would equate to about $649,501 today. And their personal value, that's the $30,000 number, would equate to $847,000, sorry, $847,175. So quite a bit. When I say it's a little bit of a fortune, it's kind of a large amount of money. Um, and the property also listed 30 slaves. Now, I don't know if they included that in the personal property value as they might have, I don't know, or even in the real estate value. This probably spurred his decision to enlist during the um, Civil War on the Confederate side. So in 1861, George enlisted in the 8th Texas Cavalry, known as Terry's Texas Rangers. Not, by the way, to be, con uh, to be confused with the actual Texas Rangers. That was more of a police force. Um, this was a branch of the Cavalry. So this branch was not as decorated as the more well-known Texas Brigade. Brigade who distinguished themselves in the Battle of Gettysburg, but they did participate in about 274 skirmishes and engagements in seven different states during the four years that they were active. Littlefield's rank, when he, a little bit after he entered, was the second sergeant of Company I. And on January 10th, 1862, he was elected to second lieutenant by the soldiers under his command. Now, I think it, it did mention in a few of the articles that he was fairly young. I think maybe he was 20 at this time, so he rose pretty quickly in the ranks. Um, and at the Battle of Shiloh, the captain of his company and the first lieutenant were out on furlough in Texas. So George commanded his company during that battle. The captain never returned. Maybe he deserted. Who knows? Um, and the first lieutenant died shortly after returning. So he was elected as the official captain on May 10th. After two more battles, and that is the Battle of Perryville in Kentucky and the Battle of Chickamauga, Tennessee, in September of 1863, he was made acting major of his regiment. So he is just blowing up through the ranks in the Confederate Army. Um, and on December 9th, 1863, at Mossy Creek in East Tennessee, he was severely wounded and then given a full promotion to major. After this, though... He was just too wounded to continue fighting, so he was discharged from the Confederate cavalry. And when he left, by the way, for the war, it's 19, he was already engaged to 15-year-old Alice. And while he was on leave, before the injury happened, while he was on leave, they ended up getting married in Houston. So now that he was home, the couple could have a married life, and they returned to the plantation at Gonzales County. By all accounts, they had a very happy and successful marriage. Um, only marred by a couple of things. They had two children. However, one did not survive to his first year and the other one died in infancy. I think he was a stillborn. So um, that's heartbreaking. And as a result, they became very close to their nephews and nieces. And over their lifetimes or throughout their lifetimes, they ended up paying for the educations of both nephews and nieces um, throughout even like primary school, and then on to uh, university as well at the University of Texas. So once back home, Littlefield had to make a living, right? Um, because the plantation 
needed to be worked, but he still needed to do something on his own. So he tried farming the plantation, but since the family land was located at the confluence of the San Marcos and the Guadalupe rivers, floods constantly, in fact, two different years, washed out his crops and brought him to near bankruptcy. Um, He didn't really make any headway into real financial success until 1871, so quite a few years later. Um, Cattle market speculation was really big in Texas, and that is what brought him a lot of money. He ended up driving large herds of beef cattle from South Texas to Kansas. So when you see all those stories of cowboys and cattle drives and stuff like that, that's one of the things that he did. And I'm going to say one of because he was a very busy dude. He did a lot of stuff. Um... Eventually, he ended up buying a lot of ranches, and I mean a lot. So um, let's get to that. Once he was back in Texas from the cattle drives, he opened a dry goods store in Gonzales. But then he also began buying ranches in Caldwell and Hayes County. And later on, he added more ranches in Mason, Kimball, and Menard counties. He then moved on to larger purchases, and this is throughout his life, but I'm just going to go ahead and list them because it's a massive amount. So he purchased the LIT, or LIT, but I think it's LIT Ranch in the Texas Panhandle. Um, And get ready for another thing I'm going to say incorrectly, the Bosque Grande. Grande? Oh, Christ. Here's the thing. I actually am Mexican, like my dad is Mexican, but I just said Grande. Um, The Bosque Grande in the Pecos River, River Valley and the Four Lakes and the Plains, both in New Mexico. The Yellow House on the Texas Plains, and that's one of his biggest deals, and the Mill Creek and Saline Ranches in the Texas Hill Country. At one time, his cattle, branded with the LFD brand, roamed over an area of eastern New Mexico the size of the state of Rhode Island. So this was a massive purchase. And we think of the, when you think of the ranches that you see today, if you go traveling throughout the Texas Hill Country and through Bernie and things like that. Um, they seem really small, but I mean, this is just a large expanse of land. So think about that. Think about how massive that really is for one person to own. Um, in 1883, he then moved to Austin, Texas, which was at this point, the capital. He organized and served as the president of the American National Bank from 1890 to 1919, which is around the time of his death. Um, and the building he worked in was known then and known still as the Littlefield Building. Um, It now houses the Capital One Bank, so kind of cool um, that it's still around. But I think most everything that he created is still around to this day. Um, George Littlefield was also one of the many owners of the Driscoll Hotel in downtown Austin. He owned the hotel from 1895 to 1903, and during his ownership, he's known for installing the building's first electric lighting. If you'll remember, if that sounds familiar to you, if you'll remember two episodes ago, I mentioned that during the time the Servant Girl Annihilator was active, Austin was growing and experiencing a population and financial boom. And George Littlefield was very much a part of that. But one of the biggest things to come out of the um, Servant Girl Annihilator's murders was that these large electric lights, some of them are still being used today, were installed on the streets so that it would be easier to see people. They couldn't really hide in the shadows. And one of the reasons why Austin was so ahead of the times and why it was called the Athens of Texas was because it did have a lot of this electric lighting. So George Littlefield, part of Texas history in that little way, but also in a much larger way. So he was a super, super busy guy. And if you'll remember when I was saying that he made that really big uh, deal for the Yellow Ranch, 
or really the Yellow House Ranch, um, it really was kind of an important thing that he did. So he made a deal for $2 an acre, and that was for 312,000 acres. So huge, huge, huge purchase at the time. Um, and just cemented his place in Austin as, as one of the most um, successful and prominent residents at the time. So in 1911, Governor Oscar Branch Colquitt appointed him as regent to the University of Texas. And during his nine years as regent, he donated a massive amount of money to the school. He and also created, sorry, he also created this still standing and very recognizable Littlefield Fountain, along with Alice Littlefield Dormitory, Littlefield Fund for Southern History, and several statues of Confederate generals, including General Robert E. Lee. He also established the Sons of Confederate Veterans Group, along with the Daughters of the Confederacy, which was started by Alice. These groups are still very active, and they largely protested the removal of the Confederate statues from the University of Texas campus in 2017, but were unsuccessful in their efforts. And a lot of people will look down on the Littlefield legacy because of this, and will say, okay, well, they were um, all about the Confederacy, they were racists, maybe. Um, they are definitely about the Confederacy, but as far as being racist, I'm not sure. Um, I think they were about as racist at the time. I think for them, it might have been more about... One, being a veteran, and then two, a lot of it probably had to do with the fact that he did have a plantation that ran with slave labor. So it may not have been like, oh, well, I think these people are subhuman, although you would kind of have to feel that way if you weren't going to pay them much. I think they did get paid like the small pitiful amount, but not enough to really do anything with. But um, I don't, I think it was really economic for him, given some of the things that he does later on in life. Um, nevertheless, it is part of history. Do look at that, uh, with a grain of salt. Yes, he was by most accounts, a very generous hearted person. Um, but he also did a lot of other stuff. So he's kind of a polarizing figure in my mind for that reason. Going back to some of the things that he established, um, the Littlefield Fund for Southern History, if you haven't heard of that, um, what it really came of is that when he was looking at the curriculum for the students at UT Austin, he felt that a lot of their books focused too much on history from the Northern perspective. So he created this fund and rewrote some of the books, and not just him, there are actual academics that were involved in this, rewrote some of the books to tell it from the Southern perspective, which is why you will find a lot of the books at UT Austin, or some of the books at UT Austin, stamped with the Littlefield name. So just to explain that a little bit, um, that's what that is. Now, let's get to his house, which is the actual subject of this podcast episode. His residence, located in the heart of the University of Texas campus, was designed by architect James Warren Berger and cost about $50,000 at the time of construction. It was, and still is, located on 24th and Wittis Streets, and is a beautiful, beautiful home. It's built in the Victorian style and even has a Himalayan cedar tree that George had imported and planted on the land. He was so serious about this tree being um, successful and fruitful, not fruitful, like in a tree sense, but alive for long times, long periods of time, um, that he even had the soil dug up and replaced with Himalayan soil so that the transition could be easier for the plant. Um, it's still alive. 
and standing today at 35 feet tall and has really distinctive horizontal kind of sloping layers. It's really beautiful. That tree is just unbelievably gorgeous. So Alice ran the house and hosted parties and meetings there. But in 1912, around the age of 65, she developed a delusion that everyone in her house would be murdered and that she would be kidnapped. It's said that one day she ran down the stairs of the house screaming for her life and had to be forcibly restrained. George consulted a psychiatrist who told him to take her to a sanitarium and just be done with it, but he refused. Taking your wife to a sanitarium to be done with the problem happened quite often too. Um, That was not unheard of at this point in time. It was a lot easier and people could take care of her. I'm going to say like with air quotes there, take care of her um, because mental health was not really at the advanced level that it is now. And by being taken care of, she probably would be shut into a room with about 40 other people with maybe one to five people looking after her. Um, So yeah, maybe he knew that maybe he didn't. I don't know. But his response to that doctor was this. Um, He says, I would not think of leaving her with strangers, but I would carry her home so I could look after her and care for her in comfort. He hired three nurses to help him, but Alice's condition continued until his death in 1920. But after that, Alice's condition completely improved, almost immediately after his death, in fact. Um, After this, after she got better, she spent a lot of time with relatives, but not really with the public, which earned her a reputation for being a shut-in. She died on January 9th, 1935, and is interred at Oakwood Cemetery next to her husband and her husband's first and early slave and later servant, Nathan Stokes. Well, I say that, but her body is there. Her spirit may be at Littlefield House still, as it's come to be known. We're about to get to that, though. After her death, Littlefield House was willed to the University of Texas to do with it what they pleased, and it's now used for offices and a space for miscellaneous university events. And I've actually been to this home before. After high school, my friend and I were discovering his new college campus at UT before I was leaving to St. Mary's in San Antonio, and we came across Littlefield House and didn't know what it was, but of course, it was pretty, and being the mischievous kids that we were, we promptly opened the door and just walked right in like we own the place. Um, We're both kind of nervous about it. And the minute we heard people moving around upstairs, we just jet. But I've had people, when I tell that story, say, oh, do you think it was ghosts that you heard? No, most certainly not. I do not think it was ghosts. I think it was people probably in their offices, and we just got scared. But while I was there, I just remember it being decorated completely in the Victorian style, like we had just stepped back to the 1860s or something, or the 1870s. It was really gorgeous. Now, on to the ghostly activity. There are many accounts of the hauntings of Littlefield House. The main ones have to do with Alice, and generally they're on the second floor of the home. People have heard a piano playing lightly, as she was known to do. They've heard laughing and sometimes singing. Now, in other times, they can hear screaming. There are rumors that George Littlefield also experienced some of his wife's paranoia, and that he shut her up in the attic while he was away so that no wayward Yankee soldiers would take her, even though the war had been over by the time of its construction. 
while shut up in the attic, she would be attacked by bats and other critters, which resulted in her constant screaming. If this were true, it would explain why she all of a sudden got better after his death. So yeah, this whole nervous disease, as they call it on a lot of different sites, or nervous condition, um, was known to be hers. But what if it wasn't? What if it was George Littlefield's? And she was just made to play along and was, you know, the victim of a lot of these fears. It would explain a lot. That's all I'm saying. Maybe we should explore that. Although I don't know how you could. So other stories, by the way, are a little bit more sinister even than that one. And I say that because it just really scared me. But I was looking at a story on backpackerverse.com and it describes an incident at the house told from just grain of salt here. Take it with a grain of salt. It's told from the perspective of the boyfriend of the woman who experienced it. So I'm going to go ahead and read this story because I don't want to get anything wrong about it. Um, and he says about her, one of the academic clubs she's involved in had an impromptu meeting at the house because their usual meeting spot at the library was being used. The meeting was well underway when she stood up to use the restroom. However, the bathrooms were temporarily out of order on the first floor. So she decided to see if she could use the bathroom on the second floor where the offices are. She climbed the steps, located the bathroom, and conducted her business, he said. But when she stepped back into the hall, she noticed a photograph on the ground that definitely wasn't there before. Now, most people who go to the University of Texas know all about the Littlefield and the numerous contribution, contributions that they made to the school. So when my girlfriend looked at the details of the photograph and the decor in the picture, she presumed that the picture had belonged to Alice Littlefield. So the interviewer at this point says, can you describe the photograph for us? And they do. I'm going to post this article on the website, but they do include a picture and it is really scary. So anyway, look at that. Um, but here is a description. He says, well, it was definitely old. There was a large oval mirror in the background that you don't see much these days. But in the foreground was this old fashioned mannequin used for making women's clothing the top half looked eerily like a real human, but from the waist down, it was made out of wood pieces structured together to fit dresses on. I believe they call that a dress form, just if you ever listened to this for his information. Uh, my girlfriend stood there admiring her find, thinking about who she should give it to on the school board, when things got very crazy. She told me that while she looked at the photo, the woman mannequin turned her head to look at my girlfriend and gave her a strange smile. My girlfriend described that smile as maniacal. She was so caught off guard, she dropped the photo as if it had burned her. And she said that it started to fall, but disappeared before the picture hit the ground. He goes on to say, My girlfriend is one of the most practical people to ever attend the University of Texas at Austin. And if it rattled her that much, then I truly believe Littlefield House is haunted. Well, that'll do it for me. Um, that... I swear, if I ever saw something like that, I would bolt. Um, yeah, especially if the photograph disappeared. Um, staff members, that's not the only one. Staff members have actually long reported a feeling of unease in the house, usually on the second floor. They've also reported that most of the experiences reported are usually experienced by children of the staff members. They've also seen Alice Littlefield walking the house of her home or the halls of her home at night. One of the stories that I thought was a little bit interesting, I didn't include it before just because I wanted to really be able to talk about it. So a lady worked there 
And after a long day, she went to go visit her granddaughter. And when she went to hug her, the little girl said, ew, you smell like a ghost. And I thought, like, that was the end, by the way. They never explained anything else after that story, and I haven't found any other record of it. But, ew, you smell like a ghost. Like, what does that even smell like? How would a girl know that? But if most of the experiences have happened to children, maybe that's what it is. Maybe children know inherently what a ghost smells like. I don't know. Um, A lot of people have also experienced their items being moved around on their desks without their knowledge. So whatever or whomever might be haunting this house, notwithstanding, you guys should visit the home. I mean, even the pictures online, just take a look through them. It's still decorated in the Victorian fashion, and it's truly a testament to the period it was built in since it's gone through very little renovation. One of the things that stands out to me is that I really don't know of any other Victorian houses in Austin that are from that period, especially in that area. Um, There was one article online that said that that Victorian house in particular is just a ghost in and of itself because that ostentatious design that accompanied Victorian architecture is not really seen anymore. So the house by itself is just a ghost of a pastime. Um, That description, you know, aside definitely go see this house, look through the pictures because they're really gorgeous. Um, whether you're an Aggie or not, still go check it out. Um, go to the home of the Longhorns and check it out. Um, it is a really beautiful place to be. And when I was there, I didn't feel any sort of presence or unease, but as we've talked about before, I'm not really, I don't know, ghosts don't like me or something. So I never really get to experience any of them. Not, you know what? I'm going to say I don't want to. I like the stories. They're fun, but It's not necessarily something that I'm looking to experience. I just like to tell the stories. That's it. So that is the story of Littlefield House um, located in Austin, Texas. So y'all have been listening to this podcast for a while. If you haven't already, please rate and review the podcast on um, Apple podcast. That would be super, super, super helpful. I've also gotten an Instagram in this time. So it's at historical paranormal on Instagram. Um, you can definitely go to our website and that is historical paranormal blog. And I just started a discord, but I have no idea how to use it. That might be for like our Patreon members. If we ever get one, um, if we get one, like even if they do like a dollar a month, that's it. We're going to be best friends. Um, the Patreon's also available, so it's exciting, exciting time. Please reach out to me if you have any um, notes on the story or if you have any ghost stories that you'd like to tell. I'd love to hear them. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and end this episode. I will see you guys next week with a truly haunting story. Bye.